0: I'd like to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at this, the 7th LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival. Um, my name's Danielle Science and I'm a fellow at the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, I'd like to introduce this morning's speakers. Um, so, Catherine Youssef, who is a Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, Guy Vince, who is journalist, broadcaster, and the author of Adventures in the Anthropocene. And Guy will be signing books in the foyer afterwards. Um, And finally, Matthew Griffiths, um, writer and scholar, um, whose work focuses mainly on climate change. So the format of the event is that each speaker will speak for about 10 minutes, um, addressing this issue of the human age, art, and identity in the Anthropocene. And that will leave some time for discussion and then questions from the audience. Um, if you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Literary Festival. Um, I think Guy will be speaking first. Hello, thanks for coming. So I'm just going
1: to explain a little bit about what the Anthropocene is. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, great. <clears throat> so ever since humans first emerged onto the wild savanna, we have modified our environment with that kind of animal we've burnt our way through forests we've cut necklaces of rice into mountains we've shifted rivers we've hunted to vanishment some of the biggest animals the world has ever known we've tamed others we've dug the mud the rock and built magnificent cities our planet has been completely transformed by us. But the changes that humans have made in recent decades have been on such a scale that they've altered our world beyond anything that it's ever known in its 4.5 billion year history. Our influence is no longer confined to just a local area or even a region. It's now global and so profound that geologists are saying that we're moving into a new age, the age of humans, the Anthropocene, that's what it means. Millions of years from now, they say, there will be a stripe in the accumulated layers of rock that will reveal our human fingerprint, just as we can see the dinosaur footprints that mark the Jurassic, or, or the explosion of life that marked the Cambrian. Our influence will show up as changes in the chemistry of the oceans, the loss of forests, the growth of deserts, the damming of rivers, the retreat of glaciers. All these, all these physical things are leaving signs in the rocks for, for, for geologists to find, to discover millions of years from now. The fossil records will show extinctions of the various animals that we've got rid of, the abundance of domesticates, the chemical fingerprint of artificial materials such as aluminium drinks cans. Aluminium doesn't exist naturally. We have to make it, even though it's an element. Uh, Plastic carrier bags, the footprints of projects like a single mine in the Canadian oil sands that moves twice as much earth every year than flows down all the rivers in the world combined. So in the Anthropocene, Humanity has become a geophysical force on a power with earth-shattering asteroids and planet-cloaking volcanoes that have defined past eras. Earth is now a human planet. We decide whether a forest stands or is raised, whether pandas survive or go extinct, how and where a river flows, even the temperature of the atmosphere. We're now the most numerous big animal on Earth and next in line are the animals we have created to feed or serve us. Four tenths of the planet's land surface is now used to grow our food. Three quarters of the planet's freshwater is now controlled in some way by us. It's an extraordinary time. In the tropics, coral reefs are disappearing. At uh, the poles... Ice is melting, the oceans are emptying of fish because of us, entire islands are vanishing under rising seas just as naked new land appears in the Arctic. So no part of this planet is untouched by human influence in some way. We have transcended natural cycles, we've altered the physical, chemical and biological processes of the planet. Humans have the power now to heat the planet further or to cool it right down, to eliminate species or to engineer entirely new ones. We have invented robots to be our slaves, computers to extend our brains, an ecosystem of networks with which to communicate. We have shifted our own evolutionary power with medical advances that save those who would naturally die in infancy. We've surmounted the limitations that restrict other species by creating artificial environments and external sources of energy. A 72-year-old man now has the same chance of dying as a 30-year-old caveman. We are supernatural. We can fly without wings. We can dive without gills. We can survive killer diseases and be resuscitated after death. We're the only species to leave our planet and visit our moon. How long have I got? A little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, So... The realisation that, ex- that we wield such planetary power requires quite an extraordinary shift in perception, certainly in the science community. It fundamentally topples the scientific, cultural and religious philosophies that define our place in the world. Up until the Middle Ages, man was believed to be at the centre of the universe, then came Nicolaus Copernicus in the 16th century, put Earth in its place at the centre of the universe. Just another, sorry, Earth in its place, just another planet revolving around the sun, Earth in the solar system. By the 19th century, Charles Darwin had reduced our role even further. Humans were just another little twig on an evolutionary tree. Now the paradigm has shifted again. We're no longer just another species. Humans have become masters in a way of our planet. And integral to the destiny of life on Earth because we have the power to change it. Um, So um, how will we deal with consequences of the Anthropocene that we've created? We've always altered ecosystems to serve our needs and presumably we will continue to do that. We've improved the planet for our survival in a number of ways. For example, we've saved off the next ice age indefinitely, we've also made it worse. Some of these negative consequences we can overcome through technological advances, migration, other adaptations, others we will need to learn to live with. And while science may be able to identify biophysical issues, it cannot tell us how to react. That is for society to decide. Humans are no longer just another animal. We have specifically human rights Expected to be achieved through development, including access to sanitation, electricity, even the internet, and delivering social justice, protecting the environment are closely linked. How poor people get richer will strongly shape the Anthropocene in the decades to come. The enormous impacts we're having on our living planet in the Anthropocene are a direct consequence of the immense social changes we're undergoing, changes to how we live as a species. We now support a massive global population, but we've not simply multiplied the number of small hunter-gatherer communities. More than half of the world's population now lives in cities. Artificial constructs which act like giant factories consuming the planet's plants, animals, water and mineral resources. Human, humanity operates on an industrial scale um, So, I'll just finish. <laughs> the self awareness that comes with recognizing our planetary power also demands we question our new role. Are we just another part of nature doing what nature does, reproducing to the limits of environmental capacity, after which we'll suffer a population crash? That's what other species do. Or are we the first species capable of self determination? able to modulate our natural urges, our impacts in our environment such that we can maintain habitability on our planet into the future? And what of our relationship to the rest of the biosphere? Should we treat it as every other species does, as an exploitable resource to be plundered mercilessly? Or does our new global power imbue us with a sense of responsibility over the rest of the natural world? And now I'll pass to other people. Thank you. (laughs)
2: Thank you all for coming out on a Saturday morning, and thank you, Danielle, for organising this. Okay, brilliant, thank you. Um, So as we've heard a little bit about the Anthropocene, I'm going to assume that we all know what the Anthropocene is now. Um, One of the kind of key things about the Anthropocene as a concept and material claim is that it's not an actual thing as such. Um, so it hasn't been approved by the time lords of the stratigraphic committee <laughs> who work very slowly on their geologic boundaries. Um, but what it does do is it names this thresholding of geophysical forces The Guy was just talking about from the Holocene or from a kind of stable environmental conditions that have given our social milieu as we know it to the Anthropocene, which is this major disruption of biochemical processes of the Earth. So the major kind of cycles of nitrogen, carbon, ocean cycles, etc. So what this does do is it kind of promises this rethinking of the entanglement of humans within the world at a material level. And if we're going to hold on to this notion of an epochal claim, something that is a kind of claim on the epoch, Um, to name a kind of major shift in earth relations, we also need to think through the implications of this in terms of the destruction of everything that's tied to that social milieu, that's tied to kind of the Holocene. And that is late neoliberal subjects and practices, forms of life that are tied to and with fossil fuels, humanism as a kind of adequate system of thought, and most importantly, capitalism. So, in terms of a kind of new story about the Earth, the Anthropocene contains with it a form of what I'm calling anthropogenesis, so a new kind of uh, origin and ending story for man as this kind of geologically uh, significant planetary force. And it's a genesis that names man as the originator of a new geologic force operating at the scale of the planet. But it's a genesis that I would argue doesn't end and begin with man. Um, but is actually born through this kind of vast liberation of the standing stocks of fossil fuels. So if we're to acknowledge this kind of, if we think about these fossil fuels as an energetic uh, subsidy from the Carboniferous, then we need to actually think about where... where a a notion of agency sits not necessarily with man but in conjunction and collaboration with fossil fuels with this relationship with fossil fuels rather than concentrating on our last and first man as in uh, Olaf Stapleton's science fiction uh, novel So if we see the Anthropocene as a kind of new arrangement or a geographical imagination of the Earth, which includes a kind of new materiality uh, for its subjects, its ecologies, and a new discourse on time and history, like humans as a natural force um, and thinking in terms of geologic time, we need to think about what is this kind of model of a new Earth um, that we're bringing forth. Does it, uh, Is it different from the kind of historic global imaginaries um, that have previously framed our understanding of the earth, so is the Anthropocene a trajectory from colonial to neocolonial to the kind of globalization we associate with capitalism and all their kind of explicitly unequal geographies um, and uh, racism often if so is this kind of model of seeing the Earth in a new way as a kind of analysis a planetary force, a continuation of these models, or if it's going to be a, truly a break with the practices that have got us here into this kind of situation in the first place, then surely it ought to look a little bit different. And... Wonderfully, we're here with a very diverse panel of speakers, but most Anthropocene uh, decision-making groups look like this, white European men. So that doesn't look that much different to the kind of old... Uh, imperial uh, forces organising the state of uh, the planet that we used to see. So one of the things we might want to question is whether we need a new kind of concept of who is the community that needs to actually be involved in decision-making processes uh, within the Anthropocene. So while the Anthropocene names this kind of break in time and geology, it's also a material cut into real bodies. It's into bodies of landscape, into um, specific vulnerable bodies um, of both human and non-human
3: organisms.
2: So in understanding ourselves as a geologic force, there's a need to understand geology as this kind of substratum to human life. So something that underpins the possibility of life and its duration and that pertains to the condition of survival of both human and non-human life. And this is just, I mean, to look at some of these unequal geographies. Uh, Here there's a map at the top of energy use, and here life expectancy. So the two are kind of inverse um, in terms of their relationship. The more energy you have, the longer you live, essentially. So... Implicit in this kind of call to the Anthropocene is this idea to begin again as a geologic subject. But if we've kind of acquired this geologic power, um, this geologic force, what subjects um, are being kind of put forth uh, in terms of this raising of the Anthropos? Uh, Some people have called it the Manocene because of its uh, gender relations. What Subjects are being kind of looked over in the construction of the Anthropocene as a kind of thesis. So it might be said that the Anthropocene is a deeply narcissistic uh, thesis because it's an obsession with man uh, and the Anthropocene is uniformly authored and gendered uh, male, but also with the idea of the origin point of identity in man um, as this kind of new author of uh, geology. But this is a particular kind of man. It's a rational Western scientific actor. It's the heir of Enlightenment science and European colonialism. So one of the things that we might want to think about is what are the identity politics of this scene? If the Anthropocene gives birth to a new geologic subject, who are the major powers and who are the minor subjects? What risks and precarities are involved and for whom? So for example, how do organisms in the Gulf of Mexico bear the toxic body load, for example, of the risks that BP were prepared to undertake in order to maximize profit? So which bodies are targeted, which populations are targeted in uh, access to geologic resources? And how are the bodies of the poor disproportionately affected by fuel poverty, for example, or indigenous communities through fossil fuel uh, extraction? So this kind of figure of man in the Anthropocene is oscillating. It holds towards responsibility. It says we want to kind of think about our role in a much more responsible way, but it also kind of backs away from it um, by kind of continuing (laughs) on the same paths of response um, that we have been seeing over the last sort of 50 years. So there's both a change and not a change. There's a kind of clinging towards ideas of resilience, to smart technologies, to geoengineering, uh, to fossil f- continued use of fossil fuels, without kind of diverting from these trajectories into other kind of ways of being human and other le- languages of engagements, for example. So... <coughs> Um, while the Stratigraphic Committee are searching for their golden spike, uh, this is the kind of monument to the Anthropocene. They're looking for a, a ubiquitous material trace that they can substantiate, uh, use to substantiate the Anthropocene in the geologic record. And this is a kind of proper part of the discipline of geology but in the humanities there's has kind of been a big flourishing of making these monuments of trying to think about monumentalization and produce these kind of future fossils Uh, and I kind of think of this as the kind of Ozymandias meets Charlton Heston moment where you know there's this kind of idea for a renewed quest for the fundamentals of the nature of man that we last saw with kind of the discussion of Darwinian thought. Um, and it's very much about making, trying to think about these immortal signatures uh, in the strata, but there's also sort of nostalgia lamenting this kind of passing of a grandiose man um, and a kind of grandiose m- mastering of the planet. Uh, and this is going on in the humanities as well, lots of monumentalizing the Anthropocene. But as I said, this is kind of fossil-making practice, rather than actually concentrating on what I would argue is the kind of most important uh, aspect of the Anthropocene, and that is to think about the Anthropocene in the making. So the actual processes and politics of fossilisation through things like urban strata, through the way in which cities, for example, actually consume and use uh, fossil fuels, uh, the ways in which uh, communities uh, recycle and reorganise planetary forces. So, uh, that's a model of a miner, you can't see very well, but... um, So just to kind of end up, I would suggest that we perhaps abandon this kind of rather pompous monumentalising and look more closely at the subjects of the Anthropocene in the making to kind of develop this geologic sensitivity uh, and sensibility around what is proposed as a new epoch of life. And I think that new epoch of thought needs to be anti monumentalizing, it needs to decolonise uh, modes of representation and structures of thought, uh, particularly in terms of participation, uh, and defend targeted populations um, and focus more broadly on the sites, bodies and struggles of the Anthropocene in the making rather than as a kind of uh, something that's off in the future or something that has been kind of monumental mentalised through a narrative of uh, mastery of man so I'll leave that there
4: Okay, uh, thanks Danielle, thanks Guy and thanks Catherine um, for for those presentations. Um, and thanks all of you for braving the Anthropocene to be here um, this morning. I, have, um, I think there are three broad aspects that I think are building particularly on what Catherine has said that I'd like to talk about. The first is why we might choose to engage with the notion of the Anthropocene or indeed why we find it engaging itself. Um, the second is the problems that it poses for Particularly conventional ways of thinking and um, practices in our culture. And the third aspect of it is, nevertheless, how we might um, take it up in literary investigation. And when I say literary investigation, I mean investigation through literature and investigation um, of literature, so literary practice and lit- literary criticism. I think the, the, one of the, the most kind of striking things about the Anthropocene. Um, or the, one, the thing that most struck me was that it does seem to realise this long-held ambition of, of, of humanity to master nature. Now, this has a long tradition in Western thought as has already been alluded to. Um, some people kind of point to the Bible as the first instance where um, God gives humankind stewardship uh, or um, sovereignty over the natural world. Um, but I think, as as Catherine has pointed out, this it does begin... It really crystallises, I think, with a moment of um, enlightened humanism, so sometime in the, in the um, 16th or 17th century, perhaps. And one exponent of this was the contemporary of Shakespeare, um, Francis Bacon, who was not only a playwright but also a scientist and thinker, um, who put down a lot of the ideas that are formative in our understanding of our, our modern relationship with nature. Um, in particular, in his, um, in his 1627 work, The New Atlantis... Um, His narrator visits the utopian island of Bensalem, and one of the inhabitants there explains what their projects are. says, The end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes and secret motions of things, and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire to the effecting of all things possible. Now if, as we've heard, the Anthropocene confers the status of a geological force on human beings, uh, then we've enlarged the bounds of that empire about as far as they can go you know we have ended nature in the words of the uh, the writer bill mckibben because there's no part of the earth that has not been affected by human activity um, now obviously that's one way of looking at the anthropocene the flip side of it is that although we've tried programmatically to achieve mastery or dominance over nature the anthropocene is in actual fact a, a kind of a side effect of that that program the um the chemist Paul Crutzen, who is one of the people who's, who's the main proponents of the idea of um, the Anthropocene, he kind of dates its beginning to the Industrial Revolution, the 18th or the uh, 19th century. And you can think of all of the projects that we've invested uh, in, kind of e- economically, financially, culturally, in that time. Um, the, the mastery of energy and transport uh, and material commodities. And yet the Anthropocene seems to be the side effect of those. It's the you know, accumulation of pollution... Um, ocean acidification, global warming, um, massive material um, wasting, and uh, landscape change. So, although we've achieved we, we've achieved the kind of longed-for power over nature, it's a kind of an ironic fulfilment of that because we don't have any we don't have any control over it. it it's it, yes, we have the status of a geological force, but we can't direct that. We can't say, oh, actually, we just kind of we, we want to modify the temperature to be in this way. I mean, if we think about other collective effects. Think how, how difficult it is to, and I, you know, forgive me for saying this within the hallowed walls of the LSE, how difficult it is to even kind of understand and control the economy, uh, let alone something that you know, involves natural processes as well. But it is a product of um, a collective human effect, and this is evident in Crutzen's own narratives of the, um, of the Anthropocene, in which humanity itself is the protagonist for most of the duration, which is quite a problematic concept compared to a lot of our conventional literary understandings of things that should unfold in human time and affect personalities, characters, or societies. We very rarely scale up into that next level of, uh, of geological time. Perversely, though, as Crutzen continues his account um, of the, the development of the Anthropocene, he... He kind of gradually gets more specific, so kind of relatively late on, he talks about Song Dynasty China uh, burning coal, for example, as one of the key achievements, but it's only with the Industrial Revolution that he begins to mention individual figures. He talks about Watts, who's obviously the pioneer of the steam engine, and he's, he talks about Harbour, who helped invent um, the manufacture of ammonia. And the, it's, it's interesting that when we, when we begin to think about the birth of a collective effect, we're actually becoming more... You know, we know we're able to. It enables a, a kind of an individual version of identity to emerge at the same time. You know we have inventors, but in the, lit, the literary uh, era in which the Anthropocene is, he, he dates the Anthropocene to beginning in the Industrial Revolution. We also have new forms of identity emerging through Romanticism, with its emphasis on kind of interior lyric experience, and the novel, you know, with the emphasis of the um, the interaction of characters and societies. So. Early on in the Anthropocene, we have this kind of influx of energy, this kind of um, these resources that have been laid down in the Carboniferous that actually enable us to be human beings in the modern sense. The flip side of that is when we realise that we're in the Anthropocene—not just you know when it begins to happen, but now we are in it, and we able- we understand that we have a, a human collective effect that actually renders our identities rather more fragile because it thinks you know no matter what we're doing at an individual level um, as a um, we're having this collective effect that kind of is is a, is a great leveller in some ways because we're having this effect as a species rather than as individual human beings. The uh, literary critic Tim Clark has pointed out that you know it's it's going to be our lifestyle uh, choices rather than our voting patterns that are, are going to have the the long term effects. Our use of energy, our use of transport, our consumption of food, and this kind of puts it at odds with a lot of conventional literary critiques, which you know over the last fifty. To 100 years, to say we've we've pegged a lot of literary critique at that social level on the idea, on the notion of identity, whether that's gender identity or racial or ethnic identity, cultural identity, political identity. All of these have become you know, very important in our investigations of literary texts and the construction of literary texts. And yet, at the same time, we're having this massive effect that, in a, in a way that we can't really detect. Uh, in our own human experience. So, so then why why do we find it so interesting? Why do we engage with it in a literary way? Or how can we engage with it in a literary way? Um, just to kind of go back to, briefly to the uh, example of Darwin that most um, of the previous panellists have talked about. Um, he undoubtedly had a, a huge effect on on Victorian culture and literature, um, as Gillian Beer notes in her book uh, Darwin's Plots, for example, It influenced the work of, um, it influenced the work of Dickens and Hardy and George Eliot. But obviously they had to deal with, when they were talking about the survival, the struggle for survival or competition, they were, they were bringing it down from that evolutionary timescale to the social timescale. Slightly more daringly in The Next Generation, uh, we had um, George Bernard Shaw writing his cycle of plays, Back to Methuselah, that kind of deals with the evolution of man from the Garden of Eden to 30,000 years in the future. But they, even then, that's not quite evolution because you can only see the instances of it. And he's interested in human perfectibility rather than natural selection. Um, so we're beginning to see there then that uh, this kind of this powerful notion of evolution it can only be refracted through literary texts, for example. But I think this is also true with the Anthropocene. And it's so powerful, partly because we cannot contain it in any literary texts. Um, my own research in the, um, in the sphere of um, uh, climate changes has been kind of particularly concentrating on images of weather and how they necessarily resonate in the era of climate change with the idea of climate change, even though, as you know, all meteorologists will point to us, you can't, you can't say, oh, um, Hurricane Katrina, that was climate change, because th- there's a kind of complicated relationship between the, the specific and the, the general that it's certainly more complicated now, but you, you, you can't kind of pin it down to... In each individual instance will resonate in a, in a framework or a context that it didn't before. And I think perhaps this is why, what the, the literary mode can do uh, for the Anthropocene in the sense that the literary text itself is an intentional act that through time accumulates all sorts of unintended consequences... There are readings of it that the author didn't anticipate, but it accumulates these over 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 time. In the way that the Anthropocene is a are all of these acts at a at a much broader scale, but that um, but that accumulates unintended effects through time. So I think just to kind of illustrate both the way that that happens with the Anthropocene and with the uh, with the literary itself, I, you know, I'll go back. Um, to, um, the, to a particular text. I started with Bacon talking about the, the foundations of knowledge uh, and how we build on them this great human empire. Um, but there's another literary text that Catherine's already alluded to where something with a, a great found, something's built on, a, on a, a, a very strong foundation but has uh, a rather different consequence. In Shelley's poem Ozymandias, the, uh, the pedestal beneath the statue declares... I am Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. And, of course, the next lines are nothing beside remains. We have this image of the the destroyed statue. And I think the Anthropocene works in the same way. It's this declaration of human power that we see emblazoned on the pedestal, as well as the kind of unintended consequence of devastation and destruction that now surrounds us. Thank you.
5: <clears throat>
0: Thanks very much to all three of you. Um, I guess I just want to raise a few points of kind of connection or possible distraction between the things you were talking about. Um, but one of the things that you kept coming back to, Matthew, was the idea of agency and the idea of collective agency. And certainly the idea of the Anthropocene seems to suggest that humans have some kind of collective agency because they have created this dramatic effect. Um, and I think one of the things you were suggesting, Guy, was we perhaps now need to mobilize human collective agency in order to respond appropriately to the things we've created. Um, and I guess my question to all three of you is to what extent is, is collective human agency possible? To what extent is it a myth? To what extent does the idea of the Anthropocene suggest that we have kind of collective agency and, and control that we don't actually have? <laughs> um, well,
1: well, for me, I mean, I, I liken humanity to a kind of toddler blundering around. Um, it has all this power, and and is making real and measurable changes to the planet, which um, some of which can be um, can be uh, reversed, and some can't, and some can. We can, we can return to some Holocene conditions and, and not to others but now that we have this self-awareness which comes, you know, when a toddler gets older you get this self-awareness and then from that comes comes, I think, a sense of responsibility and and um, I think I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about um, the the amount of power that we have I mean, I think Unfortunately, in some ways, we have an enormous amount of power. I mean, there, we do have the ability to reduce the temperature of the planet very quickly with geoengineering techniques, for example. At the moment, they're socially unacceptable, and they won't be deployed within democratic society um, anytime soon, I don't think. But we do have that power if we want to use it. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to use it, um, one of which being that the the way that we do it means that we would it's 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 sort of curing the symptoms. It's not it's not getting rid of the carbon dioxide because at the moment we don't have the ability. Although we lots of scientists working on it um, of soaking up the CO two rapidly. Um, but but we do we, we do have the power. You know we could we could replant the entire world with trees, for example, and that would very quickly. Change things in a in a way that it would suck up the CO two, but what would we eat? You know, so so um, we're able to clone extinct spe- species. You know, we we do have we do have a lot of power. It's just that um, as a society we have to decide how we want to use it. You know, is is for example saving the panda the most important thing? I would suggest perhaps not. You know um is is creating crops that live that um live and produce um a lot of a lot of grain in a warmer uh drier world important yeah i mean how are we going to do that and we, we do have ways now we're starting to develop ways so so i mean i i think i mean i would say that we're still toddlers but we're still we're we're starting to get there we we I think we have more power than we realise.
4: Could I, could I kind of res- respond to that? Yeah. I think it's interesting that you, you uh, kind of adopt the strategy of likening us to an individual again, which I think is one of the ways in which we try to imagine these kind of collective effects. Mm. Just like we would try to imagine evolution in terms of, in rather more social and specific terms than over geological time. And well, the I same think
1: of us as a super organism. Yeah. Or Omnis.
4: Th- yeah. <laughs> So you, you 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 have to kind of you have to make the collective into the individual, and yet we, you say we can't deploy these geoengineering solutions in a democratic society because democratic society is about all of us having our own voices individually, and ov- obviously people are of all sorts of different opinions. So it's trying to reconcile actual individuals with the metaphorical individual of the planet, and you know that you know. But even within the
1: human, you can even within the individual, you can have you know one side of your mind saying. Um, you know, you can have that, you can yeah. have that dilemma of, of should I or shouldn't I, and, you know...
4: Although the individual body will, you know, by and large, only kind of endure c- coherent conditions. You know, it's not like, you know, one half of me is going to be boiling and the other half is freezing. No, but, but they, you know. can
1: decide, you know, so as, a, as an individual, you can make a decision based on whether, whether you think the, the um, drawbacks... Um, are small enough to. Um, sorry, I can't think. But you know whether the benefits outweigh the the risks or or not, and and that's a decision we all have to make, and it's a decision the human organism as a society will have to make at some point. And you know, very slowly processes are going processes are going into place to make these decisions. But yeah, as a collective species, our history of making any decisions is really crap. <laughs> <laughs> so agreed. <laughs>
2: I think I'm more on the grumpy academic side, where I'm kind of slightly suspicious of the introduction of a geologic we and who that Mm. is, and where kind of responsibility lies. Just you know, because if we think about all the previous we's, you know, in you know imperial contexts, in all sorts of other uh, contexts, you know, these are not geologic powers that are shared evenly, and Mm -hmm. they don't have even effects. So I think there's a kind of there's a need to think about agency and how that's differentiated by geologic power, essentially fossil fuels, um, but also to think about what the fossil fuels are doing, how they're inciting certain yeah. kinds of ways of living, and to actually think about the relationship between humans and fossil fuels as a kind of shared power. Because um, I think focusing on human decision-making can often leave... The kind of material relationships unexamined, and um, you know, particularly something like geoengineering, the idea that we do have this power, you know, is slightly kind of these are very untested technologies. They're very crude technologies in terms of the way in which the kind of Mm -hmm. planet functions in terms of forces and interactions between all sorts of biota. Um, So, the notion that kind of we can make a decision to just respond to these conditions I think, you know, needs a little bit of sort of tempering with a certain kind of modesty around what we can and can't do and also who should be involved in those decision making processes
0: Um. I guess I want to pick up on on something of uh, what you were gesturing towards there and and you mentioned um, when you were talking which was this idea of identity politics and the relevant significance of identity politics in mm-hmm. the Anthropocene. I think one of the things you were gesturing towards, Matthew, or maybe not, was this this idea that um, the effects that we're witnessing, or there's a sense that the Anthropos does have some kind of unified identity, that humans have generated something um, as a as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> And I know some thinkers have suggested this means we should put identity politics behind us. We should now think of ourselves in terms of collective agency, collective effects. Um, we should put aside silly differences like gender, race, etc., and um, deal with the big stuff. Um, what do you think about that?
2: Um. I mean just very quickly the world that we imagine is always kind of imagined from a certain position so those images of the world from space are produced by Apollo kind of you know they're part of an American national identity so like every geographical imagination is produced from a certain position with you know and holds a certain set of values and kind of understandings about the relationships within the world so I think that we need to be kind of critical about the Anthropocene and how we might sort of go for a geologic leveler, and you know, and actually just think about the geographical imaginations that are at play um, in some of these models and um, ways of thinking about the Anthropocene.
4: I think that is one of the, the the dangers of the way that we can appropriate the idea of the Anthropocene. We can just kind of run, you know, we can move it into a scientific label, and then it just becomes. Oh right, it's a period now. Let's kind of let's leave behind all of the divisions that have inevitably gone into, you know, the creation of the Anthropocene, and let's try and solve it. So while I, you know, it does have a a collective impact. It's certainly more the impact of that that kind of Baconian science that I was talking about, that that Enlightenment science, uh, and it's really the kind of the, the the kind of shadow side of that. And obviously, even then, we're still talking about you know. A distribution over a hemisphere as we, as we saw in those kind of close photographs of the energy so it's not we're still talking over a scale that's really difficult to conceive and even just you know achieving agreement between the the kind of industrialized powers is kind of impossible um, so to to think of it you know any, anything wider than that might be even more problematic it's not to say that these you know our kind of political or uh, identity differences are are irrelevant but it's just to say that we have to think in a different scale you know about how you know how they they come into play now and kind of make decisions as as guy was saying about you know do we want to save a panda well you know or you know do we want to save the human race and then inevitably it leads into the questions that Catherine was talking about you know who's who's making you know who's going to make these decisions and how are they going to make them
0: yeah yeah i guess um leading off from that i I want to think about um the relationship between humans and other forms of life, and how the Anthropocene makes us rethink that. Because in some ways, certainly in the humanities, um, there's been a real, in the post-humanities, um, there's been a real tendency to think, to look towards um, agency outside the human. So material agencies, not human agencies, animal agencies. Um, and to think about life as being on a continuum rather than any kind of human exceptionalism. Does the Anthropocene point us in the other direction? Does it um, send us back in the direction of human exceptionalism? Or is there a way of thinking about the Anthropocene um, which doesn't seem to reinforce the idea that there's a kind of qualitative difference between humans and other animals?
5: I
4: think it reminds us that we're, we live in our, in our bodies, Rather that you know, so in that sense, it kind of we're definitely in, on that kind of material continuum. It reminds us that you know, despite all of our, our fine words and our projects and our programs, we have actually just had this impact just because there are so many of us. And you know, it, it's been levered up by our ability to you know um, use extract and use all these energy resources and kind of and live in cities. But it's the material effects that are only partially directed by kind of you know grand political declarations. That, um, that have achieved that so I think absolutely it kind of it, it almost reinscribes the, the, the difficulty of that question
6: um, but that's really
0: interesting in the sense of um, the relationship between you were saying it's a kind of ironic fulfilment of mm-hmm. the kind of human imaginary mm-hmm. in some way and ha- in the ways in which that is entangled with as you say the, the materiality of um, the consequences that were mm-hmm. of, of our rootedness and consequences that we're seeing that are very materially rooted mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would echo that. I think that Anthropocene is kind of very genius head sort of concept in the sense that it re-naturalizes us by saying that we are a geologic force, so we are nature again, and the nature-culture divisions are kind of thrown out. But at the same time, it's also kind of gesturing towards as a human exceptionalism and actually beginning to think about... You know, as soon as you introduce the notion of species and saving the species, you've got a very kind of you know all this work has gone on in the social sciences to think about multi-species being and think about all our interactions with other organisms, both inside us and kind of um, outsiders of kind of human bodies and now we're kind of back to species thinking again and I mean I think some of the kind of, it's interesting to look at some of the historic lineages of when species thinking becomes important um, and to think about why that becomes important
1: uh, Well from my perspective we, we are exceptional I mean we've, we're the first species with self-awareness that has changed the change the planet on the scale and is aware of having done so. Um, But we are also of nature and we depend on the planet for everything, from, you know, to clean our air, our water, to provide us with food and all the material resources that you're talking about come from the planet, obviously. Um, There are only a certain number of elements. We're just a mixture, a random mixture of those elements that are sentient beings, but we are exceptional. There's no getting away from it. There's no other species that has got this power over all the others. I mean, bacteria. <laughs> well, no, not to the extent that we have. I mean, yes, the first and they're not self-aware. So, you know, the first species mm-hmm. that did change the planet massively were bacteria, oxygen-producing mm-hmm. bacteria. But they didn't do it with any self-awareness. You know, we we have the self-awareness, and we can we can direct the, our changes. Mm-hmm to a certain extent, so I would say we are exceptional. I mean, you know, every species is exceptional, so, Mm -hmm. but for me, as a human, perhaps, (laughs) I I would say that we are, you know, we we are exceptional, um, um, but we are obviously made mm -hmm. from exactly the same building blocks as everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this, this idea—we have this hubris that we, we live in, we create these artificial environments. We live in them. We live in cities, and, and they're completely manufactured environments. But actually, we have manufactured them. But they—they they are still—they've they've all come, you know, they haven't come from some other planet. They've come from this planet, um, and we're more dependent than we have ever been on the rest of the planet. That's the—that's um, the paradox.
0: Yes, I just have one final question before I throw it open to the, the floor, which is, to what extent is the concept of nature still useful to us in
3: this,
2: in this context? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think kind of, you know, uh, Raymond Williams said it's the most complex word in the human history, of, you know, kind of, of language, that it's something that I think needs to be thought about in terms of its sort of historical and cultural uh, and political um, But, yeah, I mean, what other word do we have (laughs) for that stuff? Um, So, I mean, I think it would continue to be a sort of word that changes and mutates. Um, And, I mean, I think the Anthropocene is a new mutation of nature and of the concept of nature. Um.
4: I can't remember who first... Devised the idea, but they suggested that you know everything produced by human human civilization was second nature because we were a product of nature, and therefore it was only a kind of, or perhaps a kind of Platonic second, uh, you know, removed from the the actual natural. But uh, you know, as Guy has been saying, we we derive all of our resources from the natural world. So to that extent, it's natural. But there's so there's so much kind of there's so much value. Laden in the word nature, you know, we can kind of disapprove of things. We say, "Oh, that's unnatural," or you know, we can say something supernatural, or you know, we can say that we've overcome nature. And there is, you know, nature is another of those terms like, you know, evolution or indeed the Anthropocene that has so many possible valences that it becomes difficult to achieve a, a kind of consensus around it. But it's still a great rallying cry, as, um, you, know, as you know, as politicians of all kind of stripes, of, you know, have recognised, you know now and, you know, in the past.
1: Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, nature nature is one of those incredibly loaded words that does have a lot of values added to it. Um, I think if we think about wilderness, for example, is there really a true wilderness left? Well, you know, if you say that there's no part of the planet that's untouched by humans, which is true, can you still say that there is wilderness? I don't know, by, by the very act of you being there and, and judging it <laughs> you render it less wild. I, I don't know. I mean, there, there are all these valued terms and, and nature, is, na- nature is particularly loaded. I, um, I don't know. <laughs> OK, shall we take some questions? Thank you. Would
0: you like to wait until the... Would you mind waiting until
5: the light comes? Uh, really is that okay? Uh, just two points, one comment and one question please. The, the comment really is having seen Ebola and Wolf Hall, we know that bacteria and viruses can overtake us and maybe we're about to come to the age of the bacteria and viruses where we lose control over much of um, our lives and we turn out to be not quite as powerful as we think we are. Mm-hmm. And the question really was really pulling you back to the title and wondering where art comes into this. You touched on literature, but um, what do you think about art, then? Well, I think it, in, in
4: terms of, or well, both of your questions, really, I mean, we have a, there's a great literary example of um, the bacteria coming to prominence in HG uh, Wells' The War of the Worlds, where humanity is kind of comprehensively defeated by the Martians, and then Martian the Martians are comprehensively defeated by the bacteria, so I think, you know, that we, we have... Literature enables us to imagine these things or anticipate these things, not necessarily in a in a comprehensive way, but kind of can give us a, a trigger for our imaginations to to think about them, which is you know what I was trying to suggest with the the text I referred to about evolution, and I think it, what value it has w- w- in its engagement with the Anthropocene will be. Because it, it can kind of refract all sorts of different possibilities, you know, even within a, a single text, we'll, you know, we'll be, we'll be able to read in, you know, as I've been doing with my research on climate change, I've been reading and rereading them in different ways in the light of climate change and kind of finding uh why, you know, it's refractions through through different texts. So that may be one, that's, that's one response to it possibly. I, I would
1: just say that... Um, Scientists already broadly agree that that they're, that they're, we have entered the Anthropocene, but this is from a geological perspective it's a you know it 's a stripe in the rocks we've left we 've left enough for a stripe in the rocks. How thick that stripe will be we don 't know I mean there are models we could be on a trajectory um, to you know Double CO2 emissions by 2100, something like that. We could, you know, th- there's there's lots of pre- um, predictions. But you know, you said you're right. An enormous epidemic could wipe out um, a, a big proportion of the population. We could get hit by an asteroid. We could. I mean, there are a supervolcano could erupt. I mean, that's less likely because we can predict some of those. But, but there are lots of things that could completely throw us off our... We could um, work out fusion energy in the next, you know, 20 years and um, that would completely change our carbon emissions again. We'd have, you know, cheap, free energy, pretty much. So so we don't know how thick that stripe will be. We don't know how significant, um, from the billions or millions of years' perspective, our changes are. We don't know how long... We, we're a very, very young species. We don't know how long we're going to be around so um yeah it could it could it could be a brief time i mean i think there's in
2: thinking about in the humanities the idea of geologic subjectivity there's this kind of sense of well how do we know this subjectivity how do we begin to learn to kind of know ourselves as geologic Um, And one of the areas that I've written about and thought about is that involves bacteria as well. It's cave art, um, Aboriginal cave art in Australia, and they use live pigments of bacteria. So the bacteria uh, produce the kind of red and black colours of the cave art, which draw a picture of human identity. But the bacteria reproducing over millennia to um, actually... Have in this symbiotic relationship. So it's a kind of multi species production of human identity through this kind of cave art that's 40,000 years old. And the Aboriginal. Uh, people that live there retouch this work as part of a kind of connection with those geologic spaces as part of a connection with that human identity so it involves bacteria humans, identity, art and the kind of uh, touching of the earth, the kind of um, you know a a sensibility of geology as you know as a kind of um, as part of human identity and human energy and I think that's maybe one of the kind of reasons why the humanities have been so interested in the Anthropocene is just this, the, there's this kind of really interesting speculative space of trying to think about ourselves as geologic and how we can begin to touch and feel and write about that and you know make that as a kind of you know as a kind of tangible sensibility.
5: Um, you, you base the idea of the Anthropocene on two things: one is uh, industrial revolution, and the other is the availability of fossil fuels. Uh, but we're in an era of exponential growth and development. Uh, it will not be long till we create a species which is more intelligent than we are through artificial intelligence. It's not be long till we have abundance because we can turn abundant solar rays into the energy we can use. Um, and I just think that this 250 years that we're looking at uh, the future is so uncertain that to say there's an Anthropocene now, when the future is going to be maybe something completely different so soon, I'll just comment on that. That's a kind of issue
2: with the future, isn't it? It's kind of wide open. Um, I mean, that's. I guess then we. I guess the thing is to think maybe think about what's kind of use. You know, that we're talking about the future, but we're also talking about processes now. These are kind of processes that, are, you know, are happening now and are not necessarily. I mean, they have future consequences, but they're they're things that we can actually begin to think about now. And and maybe one of the ways in which literature might help is. In terms of just thinking about a sort of uh, responsible uh, speculation and thinking about kind of ways in which we can speculate on what the future is through our kind of practices now that might kind of help uh, reflect and think about what it is we're doing within a kind of um, a sort of historical and cultural context and
4: I think to, if you know if that were to happen, if we were to be able to harvest abundant solar resources and develop artificial intelligences, I think that would really just kind of confirm that we were living through the Anthropocene. I mean, as we've been, you know, we've all been saying that we don't think that it's you know, while it, we associate it with environmental crisis and everything that's developed since the Industrial Revolution, there is this sense of power, and if we, you know, we could kind of exercise that power responsibly, I mean. Personally, I, I'm not entirely sure that we can. But if, even if we could, it would still confirm that we had that power and we could direct it. And we would we would still be living through the Anthropocene. It may then become the, I don't know, the, the digitalocene or the, you know, the, the robotocene or what, whatever you like. <laughs> However, it would you know it would begin, you know, it would have to be a transition from something that was then still the Anthropocene. Yeah, I don't
1: have anything to add.
0: <laughs>
6: Um, I'd like to pick up on some of the thoughts that have been expressed. Um, To me, the Anthropocene is this idea of the power of, of humanity to change the world, but it's coupled with what I perceive as a growing sense of marginalization and lack of power know that on an individual level we see we, at least within countries growing income inequality, growing po- um, power inequalities and things like that. So we're experiencing this power of, of humanity at the same time um, as people feeling increasingly a lack of power in terms of being able to contribute to this human agency if, 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 that, if that's possible. So the question is how do we form a bridge between the, um, or, or change the dynamics between the power we have as a species and the lack of power we have as individuals and in particularly again with the title is um, what's the role of art in this in this bridging process
1: um, okay for me um, it's as, as a species we, we have this power over the planet um, but it's true that disenfranchised poor people are experiencing the effects um, of the Anthropocene disproportionately at the moment I mean Actually, that's evening out in a strange way, um, very differently. But, but but generally what's happening is people in the rich, rich north are experiencing it economically, whereas people in the global south are experiencing it in terms of um, uh, massive physical changes to their situation. Um, I do think that as individuals we we do have some power I've met some amazing people who are doing some remarkable things in some of the poorest parts of the world but it's true that there is um, there is a massive social inequality um, and it's growing and um, And that's a big problem if you think of the Anthropocene as something that is affecting humans and you want humans to as a whole generally live better, more comfortable lives and that's the biggest challenge I think um, And and the way that The way that poor people develop, the way that poor people become richer, it will—that is what is going to shape the Anthropocene because we're becoming an urban species, and um, you know, living in a big slum is very different from—and you're much more vulnerable to environmental effects than if you live in a uh, wealthy, protected city. Even if it's Amsterdam, which is actually below sea level, you know, that's the big difference. So, I mean, these are the challenges that we have to deal with as a society.
2: I mean, yeah, there's massive inequality, and a lot of that equality maps onto geologic resources. So, I kind of rather than following the money, that you kind of need to follow the geology and sort of look at how geopower from uh, fossil fuels translates into geopolitical power uh, and look, I think, at some of those uh, junctions.
4: I think I would add, in terms of you know the role art can play. I think we've we've seen today that perhaps art has all you know has always been a, you know advising us of, of being getting too carried away with ourselves. You know, we, you know we both independently came up with the example of Ozymandias. You know, you have Olaf Stapleton, H.G. Wells. It's always kind of been sounding a cautionary note, but it, not in a not in a dogmatic way, which is possibly why we've you know we've we've paid not enough attention to it and and, and have ended up where we are now. Um, so, I, and I don't think. It, it should be programmatic because everything that i've been talking about suggests that you know as soon as you put a program in place there's always going to be side effects and you won't you be able to control those i think it's just to be conscious that every act has those you know both intentional and unintended consequences um, and i think understanding art in that way we can read the anthropocene in that way and that, that'll, that'll help us get through it whether or not we can deal with it
0: I, um, I'm not sure whether this is a completely different question but um, I was wondering if I could you further a bit on the, uh, the responsibility that art, literary arts or visual arts um, have towards highlighting the kind of destructive nature of, of the scene, um, as well as the power of the scene.
2: yeah I think to just echo what you said that you know the you know there's a kind of need not to be kind of programmatic about what that might look like but i think kind of the richness of certain literatures are a kind of an ability to actually kind of talk us through what survival might look like and certain kinds of survivals and what are, what is lost and what is kind of you know Survivable in a sense, you know, something like um, The Road or Octavia Butler's kind of trilogies are really about trying to figure out what ethics looks like in a completely, you know, in a landscape where all the coordinates, all the cultural coordinates have shifted. Um, And so I think there's a responsibility to, you know, looking at violence to not just kind of. You know, uh, but also, yeah. I mean, also looking at the power of subjects to change um, and to endure their circumstances, and what the kind of costs of some of those endurances are.
4: I I think that anything written now, you know, will be the literature of the Anthropocene. I mean, that's a that's mm-hmm. a rather straightforward thing to say. But I think if, you know whether or not it's explicitly picked up, it will be there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that, you know, when we see it raining, we kind of, you know, there's always in the back of our minds the idea, well, you know, should it be raining now? Would it naturally be raining now? Or is, you know, is this a product of anthropogenic global warming? And so, we, I mean, there are obviously texts that do kind of explicitly take it on. I mean, for example, Ian McEwan's solar deals with kind of renewable energy and global warming in a possibly a bit less straightforward way than you might have thought. But then there are the critic Adam Trexler has come up with this idea of petrofiction, um, which, which is a, a brand that depend you know, the, where the narrative depends on the abundance of fossil fuel resources in order to to come through. And he kind of, I think, there's a particularly good analysis. Is of a Clive Cussler novel that depends on the hero being able to jet around the place. And and the, the, these are narratives that are dependent on this particular moment in history when we have access to these ready energy supplies. So even though that, you know, they they needn't necessarily be tackling. You know, anthropocene themes. You know, the anthropocene is necessary to the construction of those narratives. So always, it always it will show up as a signature in in the literature of a certain period, just as it will show up in the you yeah. know mm-hmm. in the rocks. So, and I, and again, I, I would kind of fight shy of having um, anything too programmatic or too dogmatic, because you know there's a long history of literature that tells us you know not to do things, or um, you know we shouldn't behave in this way. And clearly, it hasn't had any effect because here we still are. You know, it's almost in spite of that.
0: Um,
7: Hi. Yeah. Um, You mentioned literature, but what about visual art? Um, What my question is that you haven't. Sorry, I'm inarticulate. there's a lot of street art all over the place, um, and recently there's been. Uh, every, everyone knows the example of Banksy, um, which I don't really know, but and the, our social reaction to it, it in general is, you know, one of, sort of a, is a negative response. You know, that it's somewhat unnatural that we shouldn't be do, you shouldn't be drawing, um, and lots of people think that. And then there's an, the other counter argument. So my question is, why it, it seems that we're pacing so much important on what we think is, right, that the ideals that we've developed in this and the as you say. So my question is, how can we... Um, <sighs> Sorry, I'm really nervous. Um, and you're, you're talking about things, saying um, we think things that certain things are unnatural and we're leading more comfortable and us leading more... certain people leading more comfortable lives. Um we're really questioning it but we rely so much on the planet you know, everything that we have here is a, a direct result of you know, our planet and what's the, all the elements so how can we use the example of our negative reaction to street art um, to, you know, learn you know, how can we use it to think about how, how self-aware we are how we can change things I'm not explaining myself very well,
2: I mean, I think, I don't know, maybe the issue is that we should be looking for all sorts of kind of forms of cultural production. And, um, uh, you know, what I was trying to get at very briefly about the monumentalizing is actually, you know, to actually look for all sorts of other ways of thinking about how we might already be doing geology we might already be having these kind of engagements whether it's rock art which is obviously a very kind of obvious form of geologic engagement but there's lots of other ways in which um, you know we engage with materials um, through kind of art practice that, um, that we might start to think about as in terms of those materials and not terms of the kind of figuration or you know kind of Images of uh, humans that we might just want to think, start to think about them differently. But also, I mean, political writing on walls
4: is always kind of a good place to start
2: with. (laughs) Um.
4: I think that I mean there's been not street art necessarily, but there have been um, guerrilla arts. I don't know how you describe events rather than installations, say, where you have um, you have walking tours around. City of London, pointing out which are the, you know which banks have invested the most in you know oil money or you know mm-hmm. kind of backed up BP and what have you, or things like people going into the Tate and um, laying down you know and, and deliberately spilling oil in there to signal mm-hmm. the, the fact that the um, that it's sponsored by um, you know among other people um, the uh, oil producers. So there are there are artists who are responding to that in, in a in a slightly less institutionalised way. Uh, <laughs> As, as well as, you know, in, in, in kind of more formal ways, as, uh, as, we've, as we've seen.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a long history of environmental protests through art mm. and music, and um, I, I don't see that stopping. It, I think it's a healthy part of culture to interpret things in different ways and try and open people's eyes in different ways mm. to, to um, some of the power struggles that are involved in the Anthropocene.
7: Do you want okay. to yeah well, um yeah then my question um, so um, no. uh, um really what um there's a lot of a which is fantastic, but what my question when you talk about monumentalizing things like, well, what can we use to learn about our role as a species in the sort of what well, grand scheme of things, really how Important, really, are we you know how important really is you know the houses and the buildings that we have you know is writing on them you know or that is that really that important um, and how can we use it to you know respond to the other you know crises that are going on uh, you know how can we use it to you know, respond in Anthropocene and change our way of thinking and opposed to not thinking that we're so Important. I'm not
4: explaining myself very well. I think. I mean, certainly this this monumentalising thing. We, we have to see it as being read another way, in the sense that we've kind of so completely changed the landscape that we will be showing up in the in the geological record. You know, and that you can see these cities from space. I think it's not so much a way of. Um, Doing that differently, but of reading that differently, saying, "Well, actually, you know, this, you know, this all needs to be forests, and you know, um, well, you know, but, but it has such a, you know, it has had such an impact on the planet, You know, we tend to kind of aggrandize it from our our ground level perspective because these buildings are so enormous, for example. But I, th- I think we need to, you know, just learn to read it in different ways. As the, you know, some of these kind of um, these kind of guerrilla artists I was suggesting did, you know, they would they would kind of tour and talk about things in a way that was kind of at odds with the way that they're, you know, they're kind of received in societies as um, demonstrators of wealth
5: or power. So.
3: Thank you. I find it really interesting picking up the word identity, how we who I would think this audience is not the poor and the dispossessed but I want to know how many people agitated over the fact that there was a building that put people in the basement, meaning that they needed to have both air conditioning and unnatural light using resources, when if they'd built on the ground floor they could have had windows and in our climate natural air conditioning or natural <laughs> air conditioning. Um, and we all sort of slightly separate ourselves from the problems. And this notion that it isn't that we haven't got the... It, you use the word powers. We have the abilities, but we don't have the powers. And I find that very interesting how everybody sort of feels that you talk about an example of pouring oil down on the floor of the Tate, that just annoys me because it takes out of the Tate's budget, educational budget probably, for cleaning the floors. You know, it's not about rather silly youths having a lovely time and party in a cheap way at the expense of everybody else that has to clean up after them. It's not, writing on walls is not necessarily clever and I think we've got to this notion that it's also cutesy and charming, and it isn't. It's about us having our heating up too high, not complaining when they build coffins under the ground as lecture halls, and without taking responsibility for actually something we are complicit in. We ought to have written to LSE and said, stop putting up rubbish buildings. You know, stop putting up uh, high Buildings that cost a lot of energy when it is not necessary here. And don't build in Dubai that's unsuitable for everything, you know, except camel racing. It's a really stupid world. It's a really stupid world. And we are complicit in the stupidity. Because we're sitting here and talking about it like we're all sort of really aware, and and the rest of the people out there are the poor, ignorant masses, you know, except for the corporates. Right, that wasn't a question. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question there. In the groves, mm. <laughs>
4: well, I, th- I think it. I think it does speak to what I was saying. In that, you know, we have our our conventional behaviours in every, and it's and it's these that are actually contributing to the Anthropocene, and obviously we feel that on an, because we we are. Instructed to think of ourselves as individuals, we think, oh, you know, either you know, it's my individual's choice to do this. I would prefer to do this, and you know, come here on a Saturday morning and and stimulate my uh, brain rather than you know, doing whatever else you know was on my agenda. And and because we're individuals, we also think the you know even the cumulative effect of all these people in the, the room you know would just be a, a kind of blip in London's energy usage for the you know even just the period of a period of an hour or two. So it's it's, I find, we'll need to find some way that we can actually say that our decision to be here or not be here will make a meaningful difference. Um, you know, we need we need to kind of use that scale multiplier that means it does have an effect in a way that allows it to have an effect only. You know, the other way around.
8: Hi there. I'd like to pick up on this issue of um, identity, and I wonder whether that. W- what we're facing here is a kind of clash of histories and a, a clash of identity that comes from that. On the one view, we've got the sort of human history that, um, you know, that we've struggled against nature, we've managed to get some sort of control on that, we've built societies, we've struggled hard for freedom, liberty, justice the arts and the sciences have flourished and he, us as ourselves have now evolved to a point where we can have meetings like this and celebrate all that's wonderful and fantastic about being human and about being different and there's a very sort kind of positive liberating view of humanity which we're trying to export around the world to reduce poverty etc a very sort of positive view of humanity but if you take a step back and look at through the geographic lens of the, and look at it as big history Um, You know, the formation of the universe, the Earth formed through the biological process. (coughs) We've got an ecosystem that's formed, and quite late on, humans arrive on the scene. And with their control and dominion over over biology, we've kind of screwed it all up. We've got uh, global warming, we've got scars all over the world uh, in terms of our, our impact on it. And that view of human history has humans almost as some kind of virus that's appeared in the ecosystem and is causing untold destruction. And when viewed through that lens, we can kind of feel guilty about ourselves. And it's almost being human is bad. And this kind of conflict between hope and aspiration, all that's wonderful about humanity and the sort of guilt of what mankind is doing, is this which has very much appeared on the scene recently has got these two sort of identities of what it is to be human and trying to synthesize those to what do we do now how do we make sense of that how do we move forward especially as this gentleman said with all the new technology and everything's coming along I think this is a real kind of clash of identity of what it is to be human should we be positive or should we feel guilty how do we synthesize a way of being that addresses those two and I think uh Politically, it's quite difficult because the the impact on the earth is very much in geological time. But decisions that we make about our own lives and politics happens in our time, which is very short. And we're obviously tempted to those things that please us as to those that might benefit 102 years in, in time. So I think politically, it's quite difficult. And I think the role of the arts here is very powerful, very interesting as a way of kind of exploring this clash of identities and and what those future visions might be and how we make sense of, of, of this point in our history. I, don't know, I was just interested in your thoughts on that.
2: Yep, I think we're having an identity crisis.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, people have always lamented change, environmental change. William Blake, um, when, when the um, industrialisation first started, there was a lot of complaint about that. Um, from from artists and with good reason I mean we completely polluted our landscape um, made people's health very poor um, and yeah we're doing really terrible things especially to other species um, and in other ways we're improving the planet for our own species and for, for that I mean you know the life of a a uh, f- I don't know. A cow has never looked better on one level. There are lots and lots of cows so that wouldn't even have existed. They're not even a natural species, you know. Whereas their um, their ancestor, the natural ancestor, the aurochs, died off. Um, but then, you know, what is the life of a cow really? Not very good. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're doing good things and bad things, and has always been thus. But now it's at um, this incredible level, um, and I think. I think that the arts and literature are particularly good at um, at, uh, at discussing that really different ways. I mean,
4: yeah, I'd, I'd certainly s- say discussing that rather than kind of directing us mm-hmm. to a particular um, pattern of behaviour. But I also agree that you know we've been forever kind of caught in this identity crisis. Just that it's kind of assumed a, m- a much bigger scale as we have assumed a much bigger scale on the planet. And I'm not sure that. I would try to synthesize it i mean i suppose if you would if you're wanting to try and this kind of uh, this human toddler the, the guy you were talking about earlier if you wanted it to have a kind of complete identity then maybe you would try to synthesize those but i think actually that that's that image is, is more helpful if it does have this identity crisis because then it will be energized and driven to um to a to survive somehow than if it it were just kind of complacent or kind of completely wracked with guilt.
2: I mean, if you think about the Anthropocene as, like, the mirror stage and this kind of, you know, because it's reflecting on man and, you know, the kind of, you know... um, And then this kind of moral judgment and this kind of sense of separation from nature, but in part of nature, um, that then you might ask questions about what are the drives, what are the desires that are actually kind of propelling these, uh, you know, geologic activities that are so damaging and so, um, you know, are starting to shift all these other kind of biochemical processes. Um, And I think that, I mean, I think, at the heart of that is the question of the love of petrochemical, well, petro kind of cultures and everything that's fueled by, you know, um, we're born into a fossil fuel world. You know, even before we're born, we're a product of fossil fuels. Um, so, examining that love might be a place to start for, um, you know, thinking about what those drives and desires are that fuel um, the Anthropocene.
0: Question at the
5: back. Well, more basic than being petrol heads, I wonder if there's um, a worthwhile critique about human perversity, human destructiveness. Um, which makes us more interested in the uh, the apocalyptic, the, the, the way that the Anthropocene may go very badly wrong. Most eco-driven art is pretty insipid, not very interesting, uh, whereas with any number of Vic- Victorian catastrophe paintings, Hollywood apocalypse movies, Ballard's cold meditations on dy- dystopia, uh, aren't we just more interested in um, aggression, assertion, growth and power using whatever fuel is available and then seeing what happens we, we, uh, we, are, we are actually more interested in the shattered uh, statue of Ozymandias than the pompous palace that would have been around it before it fell down I mean, isn't that who we are and are becoming even more so
2: I mean, I think that, but it's it's very culturally specific, right? That that interest in ruination, in ruins, in kind of um, a sort of classical idea of um, you know of the relic. It's a very it's a very kind of Western um, conceptualization and engagement with a certain melancholy around environmental destruction, which is really fascinating, um, you know, and it is really. But it is—it's a very kind of particular historical literary engagement with, um, you know, that actually kind of ne- I think needs to mutate in the context of the Anthropocene, um, and otherwise it just kind of reproduces that Ozymandias moment of, like, oh look at the wonderful ruins we've created, um, you know. And I'm not sure that that, that sort of makes us quite stuck because it's a very regressive moment if we're back to the mirror stage um rather than something that helps liberate other kinds of thoughts of being human and if this is an opportunity to do anything it's an opportunity to rethink what it means to be human um and you know that's that's a, a massive creative opportunity I think um
4: I think the idea of the apocalypse is one of, is one of those um, functions of art or narrative that I, that I was alluding to in the sense that it, it kind of speeds up the destructive process in a way that's kind of appreciable to us as, you know, humans within our own lifetime. You know, we, we watch, I don't know, the day after tomorrow and climate change happens in the space of 48 hours or whatever it is, and... In some senses, you know, we think, oh, that's ridiculous. But then, on the other hand, we need to, it to play out within that time so that we can see what we're, you know, we're doing. Whereas, in actual fact, you know, the, the whole notion of the Anthropocene, the dating of it, is, is contested. Although Crutzen says it's over the, the period of the Industrial Revolution. Some people put it back as far as, you know, the original burning of coal or the clearances of the forests for agriculture. So we, apocaly- apocalypticism will always have an appeal because it kind of... It, It's designed to make something that is happening over a, you know, an unimaginable period of time, whether that's very short or very long, or you know, indeterminable, to make it kind of very specific and and, and visually appealing and exciting and or sensual in the sense of having a form that we can sense. So I think, yeah, the 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 apocalypses will always appeal to us for whatever reason. It's just that in this era, they have an environmental strike, whereas you know, in I don't know in in the Bible. They used to encourage us to kind of believe in God, for example.
0: Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I'd like to remind you that Guy is going to be in the foyer and she's available to sign books. Um, and you'll be able to purchase her book. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I would like you to like to invite you to join me again in thanking our speakers.